is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Thursday, January 26, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. I'm Buster Only, uh, working from my home in Montana. Sarah Abbott is working from the hangar, and the Reverend Taylor Schwenk, working from the pulpit. How you guys doing? Doing well, Buster. Always a good day when I get to see you. And then, you know, when we have the guests that we have on the podcast today, pretty exciting. Yeah, excited about that. And, of course, there's going to be Hall of Fame talk. Sarah, what did you think of the uh, induction of Scott Rowland, uh, the latest member? He's going to join Fred McGriff on the stage this summer. It's always exciting. I love Hall of Fame week. This is just, I love it. It's so much fun. Yeah, for me, I can't stand it. <laughs> and, and we're going to be talking about that with Paul Ambikides coming up. It just drives me crazy where we are, Sarah, with the voting. <laughs> what do you mean? What drives you crazy about it? Uh, all of the you know the shifting standards for what it means to be a Hall of Famer, which I don't think is good. I think we're guessing more and more. You know, as uh, every year we have the votes and the logic pretzel that the writers go through in making their choices. I don't understand. You know, Paul uh, Hembo and I are going to you know dive into that and talk about you know where the the fault lines are, and there are many. It's like every year they just add more fault lines. And today, is, as you referenced, Taylor, we're uh, also going to be talking about uh, a couple of general, talking with a couple of general managers who are taking their shot, which I love. You know, we talk a lot about on the podcast about tanking teams, front offices designing failure. Well, today we'll be talking with Kim Ang, the general manager of the Marlins, who's using the resources she has to try to contend in one of baseball's toughest divisions, and also Perry Manassian, the general manager of the Angels, who's done a great job turning over the pitching staff there. Uh, speaking of Kim, earlier uh, in, in the last week, she completed a trade uh, with the Minnesota Twins, acquiring all-star Luis Arise, who is great at making contact. He's a good offensive player. Pablo Lopez goes to the Twins. Uh, Angels owner Artie Moreno announced earlier this week that he's no longer exploring a sale of the Angels uh, we're going to talk to Perry about that and about what that means for him. And we're going to be talking about Shohei Otani and where they stand in the contract negotiations. The uh, Kansas City Royals agreed to terms with the Roldis Chapman on a one-year deal, $3.75 million. Some news about Mike Clevenger, the pitcher who signed a contract this offseason with the Chicago White Sox, is under investigation by Major League Baseball for violating MLB's domestic violence policy, the league's investigation stems from allegations made by a woman, Olivia Feinstead, who accused the pitcher of physical and emotional abuse toward his three children and their two mothers, herself included. Feinstead has been in touch with MLB investigators since last summer, according to The Athletic, but mentioned her allegations in a series of Instagram stories on Tuesday. Uh, good news for the <laughs> manager, Terry Francona, the Guardians uh, skipper, got news that his stolen scooter has been returned. I texted with Tito this morning. He said that the scooter came back in fine shape. And as we talked about at the top of the show, Scott Rowland elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. He was a seven-time All-Star, an eight-time Gold Glove winner in the last 17 seasons. He was named on 76.3% of the va uh, ballots. Uh, this is the moment when Scott Rowland got the call. What do we know? <laughs> Oh, my God. 
Yes. Oh. 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 Yeah. Oh. What's going on? Taylor, oh. what else you got? Buster, I actually want to throw it to Sarah this morning because she produces the Dominique Foxworth show and we got a big football weekend. What did you guys talk about over there? Anything interesting going on, Sarah? Yeah. So this week, this episode that in particular, we did a fun quarterback swap where we went through different scenarios, mismatched quarterbacks, talked about how cool Joe Burrow is and Jalen Hurts. So it's a lot of fun at the Dominique Foxworth show. Be sure to check it out. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Jumping into the numbers. This is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight. Hembo is Paul McKee. He's a researcher at ESPN. He's a content provider. Is that what is it? Content? What is it, Hembo? I'm a content producer, but again, to be clear, the way that you introduce me on this show is much more fun and interesting than my actual job and my actual job title. I'd much prefer to be called the head honcho of Get Up and Mike Greenberg's sidekick on his radio show. Has no, you're not his sidekick. You're the voice in his head. Like I'm convinced <laughs> when I listen for most of the shows, unless you talk about some questions of style, uh, that basically what comes out of Greeny's mouth was produced by you. Well, I, I think well, and he speaks really well, and that makes us a pretty decent pair. There you go. Uh, I mentioned at the top of the show, because I asked Sarah what she thought about this year's Hall of Fame voting, and she thought it was, you know, it was great. It was exciting for Scott Rowland, and I mentioned it just drives me crazy. Every year when these votes come out, uh, and I feel like the logic pretzel gets twisted more and more and more by the the writers voting 
Uh, it, it's kind of driving me crazy, the point that I had conversations with people, you know, other writers this week, basically saying, you know what? It's time to go to the Hall of Fame for the baseball writers and say, look, here are the new rules we want. No character clause to kick that out of the conversation and, uh, you know, no ballot limits. We need to get this right because every year when these votes come out, as much as, you know, guys like Jason Stark and Tim uh, Kirkchen, they take this so seriously, Hembo. But when the voting comes out, it just makes me shake my head because of the the lack of consistent threads in terms of what the standard is to be a Hall of Famer. If I were a voter, and I'm not a voter, but if I were a voter, what I would want is exactly what you just described. I would want direction. But right now, the Baseball Hall of Fame can hide behind the 400 voters who are forced to guess. And Major League Baseball can do the same thing. And that's exactly what those bodies want. They want to say this is a democratic tried and true process that we've been doing since 1936. And this is how it's going to be. But that's no longer the I was thinking about this week, the best way to describe what the Hall of Fame voting process has become. It actually reminds me a lot of what instant replay has become like in football, because what we're doing is we're using this like really slow down, granular detail to make decisions that on balance don't require any of it. In Scott Rowland's case. Five years ago, this was a player for whom one in 10 voters thought was a Hall of Famer. One in 10, 10.2%. And now all of a sudden, without having played a single game, he is one. You can't just ascribe that to the ballot no longer being cluttered anymore. The process has gotten really unwieldy. It's very difficult for me as a fan of the sport, as someone who loves the Hall of Fame, to sit there and watch Scott Rowland and Fred McGriff be inducted into the Hall of Fame this summer with incredible players from this era for a variety of reasons not represented and i think the more and more that happens and they the disconnect that further grows between sort of the voting block and the fan base i'm afraid that it's going to undermine the credibility of the place even further as if that has not been done already and if i were a voter like you said at the top i would want direction i would want the character clause to either be revoked or amended and i want the hall of fame to be able to more clearly tell me what target am I aiming at? Because right now, frankly, there is none. No. Uh, and by the way, the character clause, uh, you know, I've said this in the podcast before. I'll say it again. Uh, you know, remind people it was written by Kennesaw Mountain Landis, okay, who was a segregationist who worked to keep African-Americans out of baseball. Uh, he would not pass his own character clause that he wrote, Hembo, if his candidacy came today. And we know that the writers recognize that because they took his name off their MVP award that they have. And I must say, after you know a decade of hearing writers uh, say, well, these are the rules that the Hall of Fame gives us, and it's very you know passive uh, approach, I I'm not listening to that anymore. I'm like, you, you have the Baseball Writers Association of America has power in this because they can go to the Hall of Fame. The majority of the baseball writers could vote on this and say, here are the conditions of, of our participation because we feel like every year when this comes out, we look more and more silly. These are the conditions by which we would agree to participate in this process. And if you don't do it, then you know what? Go find some other group. Yeah. Does that make sense? It, it absolutely does. We are We have reached a place now where the process no longer works. It may have worked for 80 years. It doesn't work anymore. That has become clear and obvious. And to further underscore your character clause point, um, we, uh, Cap Anson is in the Hall of Fame, and Cap Anson erected the color barrier, for God's sake. We can't have this moving target. Buster, right. we can't be living in a world in which Cap Anson 
being enshrined in this place that glorifies the greatest baseball players of all time, but any number of the all-time greats from this generation are not because in some cases they merely conformed to the culture at the time. I'm very sympathetic to the voters and to the writers, but if we're going to use precedent as our precedent here, you can't have it both ways. And you can point to any number of players that are in the Hall of Fame that would fall short of that character or morality clause. And I'm not comfortable moving forward with this moving target and every single year being subjected to the slippery slope arguments for which writers are uh, unfortunately tasked with making. Look, there are so many fault lines now that have been created by the the, the, the logic pretzel that the, the writers have employed um, that I, you know, we could talk for hours about the, the specific ones. I'm just going to talk about two, and I think this is a big one, and it, it drives me crazy every year when I see, you know, Alex Rodriguez polls at 36%, Manny Ramirez polls at 33%. Uh, Gary Sheffield, who was named in the Mitchell report, you know, is, uh, you know, fell short of the, the 75%. He's at 64%. There are current Hall of Famers who use steroids and who used amphetamines. And everybody knows it. <laughs> and yet, there are, we have two of the greatest players of all time, Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds, who are put in purgatory. And the reason why is because they were the best of their generation which got them more scrutiny. It doesn't mean they did something different. It, they actually, you know, I assume probably did about the same thing that more than 50% of the players were doing. But uh, because they were the best players, they got more scrutiny. So that kind of drives me crazy. The other thing, too, is I feel like every year, Hembo, I see no acknowledgement from the writers about the decisions that are made by these special committees. The fact is, and I don't know if you view it the same way, there is no distinction between being voted in by the writers or being voted in by the special committees. So on the plaque for Harold Baines, it just lauds him for specifics in his career in the exact same way that it is Hank Aaron. So I think the writers need to understand that better and need to look at that, uh, you know, the standards that are being established by these special committees. You know, an example of that to me would be Billy Wagner. Look, Lee Smith, for me, was a borderline case, but the special committee put him in in, what, 2018, 2019. If Lee Smith is in the Hall of Fame, Hembo, I'm sorry, Billy Wagner, it's a slam dunk. When you look at the numbers, when you look at the efficiency, when you look at the dominance, it's not even close. But it's as if the writers are not acknowledging the precedent by these special committees, which effectively serve, like the Supreme Court, they overrule what the writers have done. They put players in and they re they set a new standard for the Hall of Fame. So whether you like it or not, a Hall of Fame that has Lee Smith, a Hall of Fame that had Harold Baines, I think the writers have to acknowledge that with their choices and they don't seem to. Well, I think the writers are put in a tough spot there too because both Harold Baines and Lee Smith were shut out by the writers because the writers in my opinion, correctly view them as players that fell short of the Hall of Fame threshold. Because, look, at least the process by which the writers arrive at their decisions is democratic. You're using a large body of people, theoretical experts, to make those decisions. When it comes to these committees, in all candor, these are a joke. Because uh, every player is, uh, and every person in that committee is just subjected to p persuasion. In the case of Harold Baines, it was Tony La Russa bullying people into convincing them he was a Hall of Famer. We shouldn't necessarily change our standard or our threshold for Hall of Famer based upon the lowest common denominator that is in it. Like you said, if Harold Baines is in the Hall of Fame, we're going to have a Hall of Fame with 2,000 people. Of that, I'm not comfortable. 
the distinction though between players like McGriff and Roland is one worth making because if you've ever if you've not been to the plaque gallery if you've not been to that area of the Hall of Fame there is no distinction Babe Ruth is in the same room as Harold Baines is it's a point right. worth making and reminding people because you go through this painstaking process of in some cases failing to, to, to reach the Hall of Fame and then if eight people five years from now decide you, you get eight people in a room that decide that you are one all of a sudden you are one so in some sense like the process itself for the writers is so different than the process by which so many guys are getting into the Hall of Fame now. There's a committee every single year. I'm not in love with it either. Well, and I and I disagree with you. I think you do have to follow precedent. If you're the writers and the the special committee essentially comes in and says, "No, I'm sorry, you know, Chuck Klein is a Hall of Famer or, you know, this player is a Hall of Famer, that player is a Hall of Famer," then moving forward, you have to you have to apply that standard. Because it raises questions, you know, when you look at an Andrew Jones. Well, if Harold Baines is a Hall of Famer, then Andrew Jones needs to be. If if, uh, if Harold Baines is a Hall of Famer, guess what? Lance Berkman's numbers are overwhelmingly <laughs> qualify him for this. And if I were, if yes, yeah, that's fair about sir. If I were in that position, my pushback would be this. I'm not going to allow the mistakes that others, that I perceive other people uh, having have made already to yeah. dictate my future decisions. But if the Hall of Fame does come out with some sort of official statement and say, this is our precedent now. Right, if exactly. I'm, a voter, I'm, essentially, I'm essentially going to <laughs> pretend I'm like one of the electoral college voters, right? This is my opinion and the precedent we have set. Yeah, no, I, I you know, sent out some tweets uh, yesterday mentioning, you know, guys like Omar Vizquel, uh, you know, other players. And, and just mention, if you look at the current, you know, list of Hall of Famers, the guys who are already in there, then these are players who should be in. And, and I had folks coming at me like, you you want an all-inclusive Hall of Fame? I'm like, it's not my standard. It's not my standard. It's the hall. It's a standard set up by the Hall of Fame uh, through the voting system with the writers, with the special committees that they establish. And so I, you know, I think that uh, the writers needed to defer the, to those. All right, we got Kim Ang coming up. What do you think of the Twins-Marlins trade? I think Kim Ang made out like a bandit in that trade with the Minnesota Twins. They uh, they now have themselves a top-of-the-lineup stud and in return had to give away what I perceive to be a number three starter. But, Buster, we've been doing this long enough now to where I think that you'll know the answer to this question. But if I were to ask you, what do I believe is the most important trait or skill that a hitter can have? What is the answer to that question? Well, personally, I think it's dominating the strike zone. Well, that's my answer, too. And my second question to you is this. There are only two active players that have more walks than strikeouts for their careers. Do you know those two players? Uh, I, I know I should know them. Luis Arise is clearly one of them. Uh, and then the other one, I, who, who would the other one be? The other one is Juan Soto. So here's what I'm saying, Buster. If you have a guy in your organization that has a premium skill, especially that one, I like guys that are great at stuff. What Kim Ang did is identify a guy that's great at something. A player who's going to play this year at 26 with three years of club control that's going to get on base 200 times for me at the top of my order and can at least fake it at second base, that is a player that, frankly, is infinitely more valuable than Pablo Lopez and the uh, prospects that I sent over. He just is. Like, Pablo Lopez is a good pitcher. He's not especially dominant. He's not especially durable. He doesn't have a signature pitch. Luis Arise, on the other hand, batting title aside, is someone with a track record of excellent hitting who can spray the ball gap to gap which will be perfect for that ballpark and is the exact kind of hitter 
I want now that the shift has been banished. A ground ball, line drive lefty? Luis Arise in a good year could hit 330 or 340 in the National League now. I think what the Marlins have done is ingenious. And even though the Minnesota Twins needed some starting pitching, they paid a premium price and in return did not get a premium pitcher. Yeah, I'm really curious about the impact of these rules this year. And I don't think we fully we will fully know those. I do know this. If it turns out that uh, this really fosters uh, left-handed hitting, if it fosters contact, if it fosters base running more than we expected, the Marlins are going to be in a great position potentially to take care of that. So I agree with you. I thought this was a great trade. Who are going to be baseball's final four in 2023, you know, given yes. the fact that this weekend mm-hmm. we've got the, uh, the, the uh, championship games happening in the NFL? Yeah, a lot of repeat teams. Three of the four teams in the, uh, in the conference championship games in the NFL are there, are there from last year. Here's what I got right now. As things stand right now, Buster, I have the uh, opportunity to change my mind between now and the start of the season. I actually see, based upon the rosters at this second, a Yankees-Astros rematch in the American League. I do believe, and I've said on this podcast before, the addition of Carlos Rodon is going to make an enormous difference. Maybe not so much in the regular season, but certainly in a playoff series. I view the American League right now between those two teams as something of a coin flip proposition. In the National League, you know how I feel about the Atlanta Braves. This, to me, is a team that I'm probably going to pick to win the league every year for the foreseeable future. That's how sustainable a formula I think that they have. I think they're going to play the Mets. I think the, the Braves and the Mets are going to play each other in the NLCS this year. Even without Carlos Correa, the Mets are absolutely loaded. And in a postseason format, the Verlander-Scherzer combo with the bullpen that they've built, they can score enough runs and generate enough runs. I still think that the Mets are a better bet Uh, than the Dodgers are to reach the final four. So it's the Yankees and Astros on your left side of the bracket, the Braves and Mets on the right. Uh, Agree or disagree? I agree with you, and I'll throw another one in. Uh, I believe that when we get to the day after the trade deadline, uh, Shohei Otani's uniform will be that of the New York Mets. I, I think, remember how we talked about last May that the Padres were clearly the most motivated team with Juan Soto. We could see that coming right? That the Padres were positioned, they're trying to win, their owner's all in, they had the uh, they had the pieces, they had the potential investment. Absolutely see that with the Mets. Now, the, the only question is whether or not Artie Moreno, the owner of the Angels, will allow Otani to be traded. He didn't last year. He may not this year. He might not this year because his feeling might be like, look, I can't signal to my fan base that we're out on Otani and free agency uh, I spoke with someone again yesterday who's in a position to know. He says the Dodgers are going all in. So anyway, Hembo, thank you. Later, friends. Get out of here, Hembo. Sick exactly of Hembo. Right. Kim Ang is the general manager of the Miami Marlins. And Kim, I appreciate you joining us this week after basically uh, pushing us aside last week because you knew that you had all these potential deals coming down the pike so we can dive into it. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Buster. No, I just wanted to give us a little bit more to talk about this week. So happy yeah, to be and, on here. And and that's awesome because uh, there is a lot of, to talk about with the way that uh, these came down. Let's start with the deal for Louisa Rise. Uh, from your perspective, what was so attractive about him? Yeah, you know, first I can tell you that, you know, this has been a trade, you know, long time coming. And and I don't necessarily mean about Arise himself, but just in terms of us, you know, being so, uh, so um, targeted in terms of trying to improve the offense for quite some time now. I mean, um, you know, we talked about 
the strength of our club, which is our starting pitching, and using that in a way, um, if it made sense, uh, to go and get somebody like, uh, you know, like a rise, you know, where the caliber is just off the charts, um, you know, of his offensive contribution. So we had been talking to Minnesota for quite some time now. His name actually came up, um, I want to say in the spring um, of this past year in 2022. Um, we just kept our, you know, we kept a, an eye on him. Um, obviously nothing got consummated, but yeah. And then he had, he had the great 2022 season as well. So, um, you know, it finally came to fruition uh, last week, um, you know, got really hot, probably the 72 hours before that. Uh, but, you know, clearly after the free agent market had settled down, the trade market had settled down a bit. I think clubs, you know, there were a few clubs left standing for us in terms of, um, you know, trying to make a deal. Uh, Minnesota was one of them. And, you know, Rise just, you know, for for the type of player that he is. And when I when I talk about that, I mean, um, just has a great understanding of the strike zone. Um, you know, his swing decisions are really good. And then his bat-to-ball skills are really, really, you know, they're excellent. So uh, felt that we needed some of that on our club. And, um, you know, he, he fit that mold. I'm wondering, you know, uh, you mentioned Arise was someone that you had your eye on um, before uh, we got into 2000, the 2022 season. But, you know, during the 22 season, we heard about these new rule changes that are going to be, be put in effect this year. How much did those fuel your interest in Arise as we move forward into this year? Yeah, fueled it some. Um, I can say he's just such a great pure hitter. I mean, I think that's the the thing that jumps out um, first and foremost. But I, but yeah, I think when you dig down a few layers, um, he's really going to help our offense in that way with the rule changes. Um, you know, I'll, I will also say, you know, when his name came up in the spring, um, I don't know that we were necessarily quite ready to to talk about jazz in center field um real seriously um but i think once we looked ahead to some of the mark you know to the market the center field market whether it was trade or free agency and you know next year or the coming years that you know their center fielders are hard to get right now and so um you know this seemed like an opportune time how did you handle those conversations with Jazz, and when did you really begin those in earnest? And and I'm assuming that you had some selling points from for him as you as you went through that. Yeah, you know, I had first thought about this um, about a year and a half ago, um, and then Don Mattingly, our manager at the time, we had briefly touched on it. Um, I would say this past year, Donnie briefly mentioned it to Jazz, and it was just a very casual. Um, hey, have you ever thought about center field? Because you can really go get it. And I think, I think at that time it might have piqued Jazz's interest. Um, I do know that he had taken fly balls in Arizona when he was with them earlier in his career. So I don't think it was necessarily um, a completely foreign concept to him. Um, but I, you know, I think after him seeing what was going on this off season and and sort of hearing about you know, what we were doing, what we were trying to do. He actually approached Skip about two, two and a half weeks ago. No kidding. Um, and, I, and I think this was after, you know, we had, you know, again, like Donnie had built the foundation there. Um, and yeah, uh, Jazz just walked into Skip's office and said like, hey, whatever you guys need, I'm, I'm game. And, um, you know, he was, I, I mean, I give 
Jez a lot of credit. You know, he was taking grounders at shortstop um, during the workout, and and then he went out to center field. So he was letting us see it all. Uh, he was letting it all hang out. But um, yeah, went in had that conversation with Skip, and and it was really funny because Skip and I were probably going to have that conversation with Jazz, at least plant the seed about 20 minutes later, and he kind of beat us to the punch. So um, his timing was great and, uh, you know, definitely expressed it in terms of, you know, doing it for the team and, and just putting the best team out there that, that we can and, and going after the wins. So, you know, credit to him. You know, Kim, in thinking about my conversation with you ahead of this, um, you know, I thought about the moves that you guys have made that you've made uh, during the course of this winter. You get Skip Schumacher, who, when he was with the Padres, even though he didn't necessarily, he wasn't the first base coach, he wasn't third base coach, but he was known as the architect of their running game. Uh, you make the move for Gene Segura, who, like uh, Arise, has you know good bat to ball skills. He'll put the ball in play. Uh, you know, you know, you've got Jazz, of course. Uh, Joey Wendell uh, is someone who will put the ball in play. And I thought about it, I said, boy, the Marlins are really in a position where if the impact of these rules changes are perhaps even more significant than we anticipated, you guys could be in a position to potentially take advantage of that. Um, and it does, you know, and again, having known you for so long, it struck me like this is the type of team I could see Kim designing, a team that could play good defense, uh, put the ball in play, run the base as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and we have known each other for a long time. So I think you have a, a pretty good idea of, of what I like. Um, you know, I can tell you, you know, when we were going through the managerial interviews, um, Skip really jumped off the page for me, um, you know, just in terms of the things that he talked about. I will say with, you know, the the guys that have played in the big leagues, you, you get a free peek under the hood as to, you know, who they are and how they played the game. And, and Skip is exactly, you know, having gotten to know him now, you know, what you see is what you get. Um, grinder type of mentality every day, like every minute of every day that his eyes are open um, and just incredibly gritty. Um, you know, that's who he was as a player. So, you know, that, and, 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 um, very attentive to detail and leaves no stone unturned. And, you know, for me, I mean, love that type of guy um, and those types of players. And, you know, I think he will, in his mindset, um, really impart to the players the game and, you know, the the fundamentals of the game and, um, you know, that, that, that you can't leave anything to chance. Uh, and so that for me, I mean, we have a very talented group in my mind um, who probably just haven't, you know, they just, we just haven't seen them come out to their full potential. And I do think Skip is a great communicator and can really um, get these guys going in a way that we need to. Um, yeah, so I'm really, yeah, oh, just ahead. really excited about the direction of, of where we are. Yeah, and he's someone who, in his conversation with players, preaches the values of 90 feet. As you know, the Cardinals are one of the best base running yep. teams last year. You know, he uh, you know had something to do with that, as he did with the Padres. So it'll be fun, you know, to watch you guys run the bases this year. And I also thought about this. You're in the same division as the Braves, who had a ton of home runs. The Phillies have this absolute, you know, monster bashing lineup. The Mets, uh, you know, will set a record payroll this year. They've got a bunch of stars. You guys, will, it'll to me, it'll be really interesting to see your style of play 
versus those with the rest of the division. How are you feeling about you know being in the National League East with the team that you have now? Uh, well, I, v- I view our division as the Goliath, and we're David. <laughs> That's how it feels. Um, but you know, look, I think um, again, you know, with Skip's personality and the way that he likes to play the game. Um, I think it really fits our club. Um, and, you know, I look back at, at this past season and we had, I think, 64 one-run games. You know, so when you're talking about 35, 40% of your season um, determined by one run, all those small details really count. And, um, you know, him and, and, you know, and Skip's put together really good staff as well. You know, and I, I don't want to for, forget them. Um, you know, between Joey, Jody Reed, uh, Luis Arreta, uh, Brant Brown, John Mabry, um, just guys who have, have seen it uh, on a lot of different levels from a good number of organizations, winning organizations. And so for me, that's been exciting um, this offseason, you know, figuring out how, how exactly we're going to do this. Um, you know, they all come from... Uh, a no, you know, very diverse backgrounds. And so putting all of that together to come up with the way that we're going to do this uh, has been a lot of fun. So I'm excited to see what we get out there. What is going to be uh, your uh, plan for preparing your players for these rule changes? Well, you know, I, I know Skip and, and his staff have spent a lot of time on that. Um you know, I think obviously it's going to take a lot of communication early on. I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of drill work early on, you know, before games start. Um, I would imagine some inner squad games and then uh, and then we'll just, you know, we'll have to do pre and post games as well um, to make sure that everybody's understanding, uh, you know, how this is going to work. And last one on Saturday night, Sandy Alcantara will receive his National League Cy Young Award at the uh, Baseball Writers Dinner in New York. Um, give me something, uh, whether it's a moment, an anecdote that sticks out to you that was really reflective of his uh, his personality. Well, I think probably the most obvious one was when uh, you know Donnie took him out uh, uh, late in the game, and you know his pitch count had just run. Uh, it, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it's probably in the one twenties and Donnie just had to take him out. And I know that my voice was, was ringing in Donnie's ear <laughs> at that point. Um, you know, and really that's just the, the, you know, for, for Sandy's long-term health and just making sure that, you know, we treat him um, as our highly you know prized uh, at the time we didn't know it was going to be Cy Young award winner, but you know, he, he's as foundational to this team as, as anybody. Um, so, you know, Donnie taking him out of the game and, and then Sandy, you know, expressing his emotions um, very visibly uh, you know, on the bench, I think was, um, you know, was probably that moment. But I think if you fast forward, even, you know, the next start, you know, and he was in that situation again and, and uh, and again, I'm sure my voice was in Donnie's in Donnie's head. But um, yeah, he let him go, let him go, and he finished. And and you could just see the determination on Sandy's face. And it was, I am not letting this game get away. And I think that right there just it tells you about his character and his intestinal fortitude. 
um, and really, you know, just that he was going to do what he thought was best, you know, outside of his own personal um, safety and, and um, you know, uh, yeah, his personal safety, but was going to do what he thought was best for the club. And that was finish the game and make and leave nothing to chance for, for us to get the W. So that again is, is his character. And so um, couldn't have a, you know, couldn't really have a better um, number one, um, you know, so young in his career. And, and I've seen a bunch of them, but um, you know, this guy is just, um, you know, got that mentality through and through. So we're, we're just so lucky to have them and uh, happy to have them here for the next four or five years as well. All right, Kim. Uh, great to talk with you. Uh, great to see you. And I will talk to you in spring. All right, Buster, you take care. Dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's code baseball. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. This is the numbers game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer at MLB.com, and also an alum of the University of Chicago. And we're continuing with the University of Chicago uh, portion of the show, Sarah, because, of course, Kim Ang also went there. Pretty cool. I mean, incredible. I remember being in school and learning that she had gone to UChicago the time she was working in the league office. And I just had all of this pride knowing that this incredible woman in baseball was a maroon, of course, we don't have a huge sports history in professional sports these days. But the fact that she is part of it made it so much richer. And I mean, just an incredible, incredible person. All right. Hall of Fame voting uh, results were announced earlier this week. I told Hembo that I think every year the logic pretzel twists tighter and tighter and tighter in terms of who's in and who's not in. And I do think it's time for the Baseball Writers Association basically to go to the Hall of Fame and say, look, we need some rules changes, no ballot limits, and no character clause. And if you do that, then great. We'll continue to be your body bags that you stack up in front of yourself. And if you don't, then maybe it's time for us to rethink our participation. And by the way, 
I have no thought that this would actually be something the baseball writers would do. I know a lot of writers really love doing this. I tend to think of it more from 30,000 feet. What do you think of my idea? Yeah, I mean, I think that we see every year that, especially with the way the world is now, the fact that we can track public ballots, that so much is known leaning up to it. It does feel like the potential flaws in the voting system are really under a microscope for about two months every year, starting in late December and heading into the middle of January when it's announced. I do think that character clause has certainly uh, wrought its issues over the last, you know, 10 years now. We have Bonds and Clemens off the ballot now, but just that idea, I, it feels like everyone would be benefited if something changed, for sure. Yep. Uh, I don't think there's any question about it. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is 10.2. So speaking of the Hall of Fame, Scott Rowland got 10.2% of the vote in his first year on the ballot. And that is the lowest percentage by any player in his debut year that eventually got in on the writer's ballot, not a veterans committee, not an era committee, but to eventually be voted in on that same ballot that since voting kind of returned to being yearly in 1968. The prior lowest had been Duke Snyder at 17%. This shows the way the voting process works right now to me and to the point of the ballot moment. He debuted on a very crowded ballot, which is part of why that number was so low. Number two. Number two is 1978. We'll call it that. So Luis Arise was uh, traded last week. Last week? I have no sense of time. It's Thursday. Yeah, it was last week. All right. Luis Arise was traded last week to the Florida Marlins, the Miami Marlins. He was the first batting title winner to be traded in the offseason following winning since Rod Carew, also from the Twins to the Angels in 1978. Overall, he is the fifth batting champ to change teams in that offseason after winning since 1969. Number one. <laughs> Taylor's getting messed what? up with numbers. <laughs> I messed him up with the 1978, not knowing what day it is, so it's on. <laughs> All right. Number one, we think, is 30. So Ronald Acuna Jr. is protected for 31 homers and 35 stolen bases by Seymour this year. You know, I think. We're all hoping that he has another Acuna type of year and is really fully back this year. So, of course, he came three stolen bases shy of a 40 40 back in 2019 with 41 homers and 37 stolen bases. So, he would be the first player with two 30 30 seasons through his age 25 season ever. No one has ever done that. Gone 30, 30, twice at this age. Yeah, I would have guessed at uh, Eric Davis at some point. That would have been my candidate right off the bat when I think of a young Eric Davis, how dynamic he was with his power and his stolen bases. And 
and all that. And of course, Willie Mays. But you know, as you know, 1950s teams weren't necessarily running a lot. Uh, Sarah, on uh, Saturday night, you're going to be honored at the Baseball Writers Dinner in New York. In advance of that event, uh, they asked me to write a piece about you. Um, and I started in, in trying to you know, tell a room full of people about you. I, I focused on your thank you notes. And I thought about your thank you notes. And then I called you up as I was preparing that piece. And I asked you, I said, Sarah, because I, I, you, know, you will send thank you notes after every show. You've done it since you've been at ESPN, since you started ESPN. Uh, and we talked about that. And I mentioned uh, to you that I, I was guessing that knowing your personality, that you probably sent a thank you note to your doctor who gave you the ALS diagnosis. And you confirmed that. Can you just tell that story? Absolutely. So when I finally got that diagnosis, it was the, at the end of almost two years, maybe longer, really, of not knowing what was wrong. And you and I had spoken about that at the time. I thought I had a running injury. I didn't really know what was going on. And so even though it's obviously a scary diagnosis, at the moment when I found out, it was very, it was a huge relief to know what was wrong. To know, okay, there's a few medications, there's a few things I can do. And again, just to set the scene, I had spent so much time with no idea whatsoever. Not a single pill I could take for anything I could do. So I did, I mean, I was so grateful to my neurologist for taking the time to see me and making that diagnosis in a way that other doctors had been unsure of it and they hadn't known whether it could happen with a young woman all of that so indeed I was very very grateful and I made sure he knew that that's pretty amazing all right Sarah great to uh, talk to you and I will see you on Saturday I can't wait to see you thank you so much Perry Manassian is the general manager of the Angels Perry how you doing today I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Look, the, the big news in the Angels this week came out okay. the, with a statement the other day, Artie Moreno, uh, his family, uh, indicating that they're going to continue as owner of the Angels. It's fine. Uh, look, this is not a decision that you are making uh, in oh, terms of the future it. ownership of the of the Angels. Uh, Taylor, you, can you mute yourself? You're, you're cutting in. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. My bad. Okay. Sorry about that, Perry. That's okay. Uh, my question for you along those lines, how does this affect your day-to-day -day work? What's going on with ownership? Honestly, all offseason has been basically just do what I'm responsible for doing and worry about what I can control. And I'm excited that, that you know, the Moreno family's decided to stay. Obviously, there's a really good relationship. He gave you this opportunity to work here and, and put this team together, and I'm forever grateful for that. There's a passion. I'm not, people have asked, are you surprised? I'm not surprised. This guy loves baseball. You know, he loves everything about it. He loves this organization. He loves this city. Obviously, he's invested heavily in the city and, and in this team. So, uh, you know, we're looking forward to the year. And, and again, I'm direct contact with him on a daily basis for the most part. And, and the communication is there. The trust is there. So I'm looking forward to continuing to work with him. Do you, I would try to put myself in your position in that regard. And I do sometimes ESPN is involved in negotiations like the major league baseball deal. Uh, and I don't ask a lot of questions of my bosses because I don't know if that's 
really what I do. I'm curious about you. Did you ask questions during the off season? I don't ask anything. <laughs> so, you know, again, that's, that's for, that's for, it's, it's honestly, it's to, in my opinion, that's not any of my business, right? It's, it's just his team. Um, you know, he can, he can, he has the ability to pick and choose what he wants to do with it. And, and uh, it's up to me and our baseball operations group and our whole entire organization, you know, from the business side to the baseball side, you know, to put a competitive product on the field that people want to come and see. And, and we feel like with the additions we've made this offseason, we're closer to that. So I wanted to ask you about the improvement in the pitching that you guys have affected since you took over. Cause I, I think it's, you know, really under the radar uh, that it's gone, that you've turned over so much pitching as you have and gotten better. Uh, that strategy, everyone focuses on the draft when every player you took was a pitcher. Um, how else did you do that? Yeah, I think it's a couple things. One, you have to have really good staff, right? And Matt Wise has done an excellent job as the pitching coach here. Dom Cheedy, who was the bullpen coach, was right there with them. And, and uh, they were obviously very productive over the last two years to developing some of our younger arms. Some of the some of the people in the office, Alex Tam is critical with our pitching, our game planning, Ben Rowan and what he does. Uh, some of our analysts in the office, Gerald, Jared Hughes, Connor Hinchcliffe. I can go on and on um, with the people that are involved on a daily basis. But at the end of the day, it's the player, right? It's we have some motivated players that are dying to improve and will do anything to improve. And uh, there's a work ethic here that I think is contagious. And it starts with Shohei. No, Shohei is as hard of a worker and as smart of a worker as I've ever been around. And I think the rest of the pitcher, rest of the rotation, at least, especially those younger guys, they they follow right in line. And I'm really, really excited for the upcoming year. When did you feel like you were starting to turn the corner uh, in terms of building the sort of depth that you were looking for? You know, going into was sure. it 22, you know, some of the focus is on the bullpen. It feels like you made a lot of strides with the rotation. I give a lot of credit to the regime before me. Obviously, uh, Sandoval was an outstanding trade, the ability to acquire him. And, and we've done some things we feel like to enhance his repertoire and make him a better pitcher. Uh, they drafted Reed Detmers. You know, Billy and his group drafted Reed Detmers. And you know, we were able to help develop Reed Slider last year, which he didn't necessarily use much in the, in the previous years and helped him take off. Jose Suarez is another one. So, um, you know, again, it comes back to the players and the makeup and the expectation, right? And that's something that we talked about a lot here, creating expectations. And we want to be an organization that is known for developing our own pitching. You know, that's something that's really, really important to us. And with that being said, when there's opportunities to add from the outside, like an Anderson that we felt like was a really, really good fit, we'll go and do that. So, uh, again, it's a really good group. There's some arms coming behind it that we feel really good about, and you know we'll see where it goes. What does Anderson give you in your eyes? I think it's just a it's a it's it's the ultimate professional, right? There's a competitiveness there. Um, he takes the ball. I think with what he did with his changeup last year, there was obvious there was an obvious change to that pitch. It was an elite pitch. We think that can carry over going forward, and he does bring an edge. You know, he brings a toughness. I think anybody that's watched him compete, you know, on, on, on a yearly basis, that it's just there's a there's a again sense of urgency and a competitiveness that we're hoping rubs off on the rest of the group and makes us a tougher staff as a whole. You know, I had a conversation with Jed Hoyer uh, earlier this offseason, your colleague with the Chicago, Chicago Cubs, 
And we talked about how the quickest path to relevance, it's been demonstrated by teams like the Guardians and the Rays, pitching and defense. And underneath the pitching, uh, it seems like you've done a lot with your defense. Yeah, I, I joke around a lot. I mean, we we had a decent pitching year last year, and you know, we finished with 73 wins. So you need everything, you know, but pitching and defense, I think, is a staple that will last the test of time. As far as, uh, It allows you to stay in every game. It allows you to stay in every game. But, you know, I think some of those, when you look at the teams that are competing year in and year out or are in the playoffs year in and year out, they can do everything. You know, they catch the ball. They can pitch. They can miss a bat when they need to miss a bat. They can drive in a run, a runner from third with less than two outs. They can hit the ball at the ballpark. It's just you have the ability, your club has the ability to do different things when needed, and that's what we're hoping to do here. So, Perry, you know, obviously the biggest name in baseball through this calendar year is going to be Shohei Otani, and there's going to be so much focus on him. Uh, for the record, where do you guys stand now on any conversation about a long-term deal with him? Yeah, I don't talk about extensions or, or deals uh, media-wise, but – all I can say, and I've said this before, is we love this player. Um, you know, there's <laughs> there's nothing not to love. You know, he's he comes in, he does his work, he's prepared, uh, he takes care of his body, his recovery process is as elite as I've ever seen, and he cares and he wants to win. So, I mean, he checks a lot of boxes on top of obviously hitting and pitching. So, uh, we love the player, and you know, we're hoping, I'm hoping he's here for a long time. Um, if you can describe your conversations with him about how to handle or his representatives about how to handle this year, because there's going to be so much focus, so much uh, scrutiny of you guys and Otani. Yeah, he, he's the last guy I'm worried about. He's so focused on what's at hand and he's got obviously outstanding representation and Nez and, 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 and their group at CAA. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's something that I don't have to worry about. You know, he's so focused on the task at hand and, and his daily routine that I think he's done an outstanding job of blocking out any type of outside noise. And I look for that to continue. So last spring, uh, after the Yankees negotiations with Aaron Judge didn't work out, you know, Brian Cashman uh, told uh, Judge's agent, Paige Odo, look, I'm going to make public our offer because you're too, and Judge is too important of a player. We want the fans to know exactly where. We went with this negotiation and Judge wasn't happy about it. But from I think from the organization standpoint, there certainly was some logic behind that. What's your feeling? Into, I mean, you made it clear. Look, you're not going to talk about negotiations. What's your thought process behind that? In other words, in terms of dealing with the player and balancing that against representing the organization and informing your fans. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult balance. And obviously, Cash has done this a long time and has been extremely successful. Um, but for me, you know, there's a, I think there's a respect level between Shohei and I and Nez and I and, and, and that whole group that, you know, we'd like to keep things in house. And I do that with all players. I think it's important. There's a trust factor there, um, you know, and, and that is what works for us and for me. So, um, you know, again, we love this player. Um, you know, I think he's, he's somebody that we could see ourselves being in partnership for a long time. Perry, I, I, you know, there was conversation with, when Otani first came here that he would spur this generation of two-way players. I think it's the opposite. <laughs> I think he's kind of demonstrated how difficult this is, and he just happens to be an outlier. Where do you fall in that regard? Yeah, I, I, I think you could go either way, right? I, I, I think there's some valid points on your end, and there's some valid points on 
inspiring younger kids. Um, um, you know, I, I think it takes, obviously it takes an extraordinary amount of discipline to be able to do what he does on a daily basis. And a lot of people uh, don't have that, you know, to be as focused and as routine oriented. And I think he's great for the game. I think it's outstanding. He's playing in the WBC. I can't wait for him to showcase uh, his abilities there on that type of stage. Uh, I recommend anybody that gets a chance to see this guy play uh, to do it. You know, he sees your eyes just are glued to him. So uh, great player, great person, great teammate. And uh, I think it's somebody that I think over the course of time, you know, I, as kids grow up and it might not be, you know, those, those younger kids in their teens, it might be the early, you know, the, the adolescent kids that grow up watching this over the next decade and, decide they want to do the same thing and it becomes more of a routine for them and they're able to do it. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do. So we're getting closer to spring training and besides Otani, there's going to be a lot of focus on the new rules. Uh, how are you, do you plan on presenting those to your players on a daily basis uh, and how much of an impact and how much of a, a factor will this be in spring training this year? Yeah, I think it's something we'll focus on. We'll talk about, I think everybody's well aware of the new rules at this point in time. Um, I am very excited about the new rules. Obviously, there's a lot of really, really intelligent people and, and people that have done a lot of things on these committees that um, love the game and, and know what's best for the game that feel like. And, and obviously, the commissioners implemented these rules, and I'm all for it. I think it's going to be great. It's going to the, the, the pace of the game is what's going to be really exciting, I think, not only for fans, but for players, too. You know, I think just action, uh, that's important. And it's something that Phil, our manager, will talk about in spring training. Ray Montgomery, our bench coach, will talk about in spring training. Our players will be well aware and, and obviously work on certain things. What rule, last question for you, what rule uh, is, that's being implemented this year do you, are you kind of fuzzy about, the most fuzzy about in terms of the impact? Uh, where you you're, yeah. you kind of wonder, is it going to be as great? Is it going to be, as, or maybe it's not going to be as great as what people expect? Yeah, it's it's that it's the bigger base. You know, I think that's that's going that's the most intrigue, right? And you can run all types of simulators and models and so on and so forth, but until we see it and we actually see some production from it, it's gonna be really interesting. I, the, I mean, and not necessarily all stolen bases. You know, that bang bang play at first base, um, where you know the the first baseman catches the ball at air in front of where the runner hits the hits the bag might now change and that might turn into a hit. Um, that, that to me is going to be the most intriguing thing. All right, Perry. Thanks for your time. Great to see you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Bleacher tweets. All righty, Buster. Bleacher tweets for a Thursday. First up, Corey Rukert writes in, Roland deserved the vote, but Andrew Jones not being in the hall is an egregious act. Top five center fielder ever. No, I don't think he's a top five center field ever. Uh, I do think that where we see the standards of the Hall of Fame these days, he absolutely should be in. Uh, and, and Taylor, I was talking to Hembo how I think that the voters uh, don't seem to understand that once the special committees make their determinations and they decide that Lee Smith is a Hall of Famer, when they decide that Harold Baines is a Hall of Famer, that sets a new standard for what a Hall of Famer is, which is why... I, I, it just makes me shake my head 
You know, Andrew Jones not getting in. You know, why is Dwight Evans not in the Hall of Fame? Keith Hernandez now, I think, clearly should be in the Hall of Fame. Does that make sense to you? Because I, I mentioned to uh, to Hembo that I really feel like that, you know, the, the special committees are kind of like the Supreme Court. You know, they uh, will overrule, essentially, what the writers have done in past ballots. And when they come down with a precedent of a Harold Baines, a Lee Smith, I think the writers need to follow that. It's a weird contrast that these writers are living in. They're, they're trying to hang on to this old, outdated criteria, which I guess, you know, with baseball, like things can never change. Hang on to the past. But come on, guys, let's get with it. Gold Dave agrees. If Scott Rowland is a Hall of Famer, then why isn't Keith Hernandez? Their numbers are similar enough that if one is in, the other should be too. Um, that's exactly right. I, 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 I could come up with a huge <laughs> list. You know, yesterday I had a couple people on Twitter uh, referencing something that I wrote on ESPN.com saying, you know, you're in favor of this massive, uh, you know, Hall of Fame. And I'm like, no, that's not my standard. That's the standard that's been set by the inductions, uh, you know, that have been voted on by the writers and then later by these special committees. And if you look at the players who could be eligible for the Hall of Fame or are eligible for Hall of Fame induction, I'm sorry, there are a bunch of players based on who's already in the Hall of Fame who absolutely should be voted in. I think Keith Hernandez is one of those. Mitchell at Tigers of Detroit writes in, there were four players with at least eight gold gloves on the ballot, Roland Hunter, Jones, Visquel. Can you think of another class with this many elite defenders? Nope. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, we kept on hearing about how Scott Rowland, you know, got in because of his defense and that was the strength of his candidacy. Well, you know what? <laughs> there are a lot of other defenders who were as impactful as he was who are not in the Hall of Fame. Omar Vizquel, 11 gold gloves. He's not close to induction. Reggie at Baseball Yoda Weather writes in, to all those Bleacher Tweeter folks, uh, look at the career totals of Tony Gwynn side-by-side -side with Bobby Abreu. When you do, you will agree with me that Abreu belongs in the hall and 15% of the vote is a joke. Um, and he lists a bunch of different stats here. Do you agree with that as well? Bobby Abreu, Hall of Famer? Mm, look, if Harold Baines is in the Hall of Fame, that Bobby Abreu is a Hall of Famer. I wouldn't compare him to Tony Gwynn because Tony Gwynn, you know, all the batting titles that he had, I think there were eight in all. You know, gold gloves, uh, over 3,000 hits. I, I think it's apples and oranges in terms of the type of players they are. Don Irvine writes in, the Orioles have done virtually nothing this offseason. How much of an impact on their season will this have? Buster, did you get the invite to go check out the Orioles' finances from uh, John Angelos? Wait, did that happen yet? Uh, wasn't that supposed to happen this week? Wasn't that yeah. what we heard from John Angelos last week? Can we get an update on that? I think it got rained out. I think the oh, indoor oh, event got okay. rained out. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I, and yeah. I think if it did get rained out, it's because someone set off the fire alarms on purpose <laughs> to get the sprinklers going. Uh, we'll be waiting for that invite, John. Uh, Justin Simmons writes in, Hey, Buster, I heard Michael Lewis say in an interview on Freakonomics, on the Freakonomics podcast that the Iranians stole the first 50 pages of Moneyball when he was writing it. Have you heard that before? I know you often recommend the book on the pod. Look, I, I uh, you know did an event with Michael Lewis, I want to say about 10, 12 years ago. I think it was at William and Mary, and he never told that story. When I heard that story, I was like, holy crap. But here's the thing about Michael Lewis is that you know if someone stole 50 pages, he probably replaced it in an hour, you know, in terms <laughs> of how he writes. Last one for the week. Brad Barber at B. Rad Barber writes in, what, player, what do players get for participation in the WBC? Do the teams get anything? Yeah, I can't remember how much cash they get. I'm sure they get some amount of dollars. Uh, the teams don't get anything. 
except a lot of angst because <laughs> they don't like having <laughs> their players who they pay during the course of the season uh, under the care of somebody else. And inevitably, every time we have the WBC, there are players who wind up getting hurt, who are not available to their teams, and it drives managers, it drives general managers crazy. Alrighty, that'll do it. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter over the next week. Thanks for writing in, everyone. That's it for today. My thanks to Perry Manassi and to Kim Ang, Sarah, Hembo, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus Chews provides one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NexGuard Plus Chews.